0: This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. Today, I'm talking to Fuchsia Dunlop. Uh, She's the author of this absolutely amazing, just gigantically wonderful book called The Food of Sichuan, a new and updated edition of her previously published book called Land of Plenty. How are you, Fuchsia?
1: Fine, thank you. Speaking to you from London.
0: Yes, it's really... it's The miracle of Skype allows us to do this. Um, I will say I was familiar with your work because one of my daughters, knowing that I like to cook, gave me a copy of Every Grain of Rice a number of years ago and promptly borrowed it, and I've never seen it since. So... <laughs> I I know it's a really good cookbook but I've never actually gotten to spend time with it. Um and so getting you know when I saw this book was published I thought this is great. Um I'll be able to actually keep it and um and learn how to use it. So I'm really happy that you did this book and it's I mean the physical book I want to say is just Absolutely beautiful. I I know this was originally published in England by Bloomsbury. Is that correct?
1: Yes, it came out just two weeks earlier, the UK edition, but it's basically the same book.
0: Right, and it's a uh, large size. I mean, really a lot here. Um, I made some notes, or so I have some things to ask you about. But I really, I thought it would be really fun to hear you talk a little bit about your background what got you to China in the first place, not necessarily to cooking, but why you were in China. Um, You know, it's just a little back. I just, it would be interesting to know, I think.
1: Yeah, so uh, China was an accident really. So I graduated in English literature from Cambridge University. And in my first job after that, I found myself sub-editing a whole lot of material about East Asia. So I was mildly interested in China, interested enough to go there backpacking on holiday in 1992. And that's what really hooked me. And um, I came back and started evening classes in Mandarin and then eventually applied for a British Council scholarship to study in China. So I went there not officially to study food, although I'd been an extremely keen cook and eater really since early childhood. And one of the reasons that I chose Sichuan um, and Sichuan University for my scholarship study was that it had this legendary cuisine, which I'd sampled in passing the previous year.
0: So, you know, was in England, when you were growing up, um, I take it that there was not very much Sichuanese food available, that it was mostly the older, kind of more traditional, um, uh, tra- you know, kind of well-traveled Chinese cookery?
1: Absolutely. Yes. I mean as far as I know there was no authentic Sichuanese cuisine around when I was growing up. And certainly for most British people and for me we had something a bit like American Chinese food, a sort of simplified um, version of takeout, you know, Cantonese food, so things like sweet sour pork balls and egg fried rice. But nothing like the flavors of
0: Sichuan Right now, I remember when I was young, we lived in England, and I remember going on some sort. My parents were kind of uh, you know they were definitely interested in food, and we would go exploring and i It seems to me that we went to some place called the East India Docks, where there were Chinese restaurants what i don 't remember because it was so long ago was whether you know what the cuisine was, but I think that it 's similar here in America, although I kind of remember there being Sichuan and Hunanese cooking in New York. I know there was Shanghaïs in New York, in Chinatown, and probably in San Francisco and Los Angeles, so it might have been that America was a little farther along uh, in having uh, experience with Sichuanese cooking before England was.
1: Yeah, you you may be right, and certainly with Hunanese food, but I think it's also true in Britain and probably in America that... Because Sichuanese food is very famous within China, that um Cantonese restaurateurs would often borrow the name of right. Sichuan and call these dishes Sichuanese just because they were a bit spicy. But um that that the kind of you know so called Sichuan dishes that were available before, you know, around the time I first went to China, they were not really authentic Sichuanese cuisine as far as people from China would be concerned. It was a sort of um you know adapted to Cantonese taste.
0: Right, and and of course, I, I think that's something that's true of Chinese cookery in general. It's very adaptive, um, and accretive. It you know it's it's uh, uh, adapting to what's available to it in terms of the audience, but also the ingredients, but also likes. Uh, you know, the cuisine kind of tends to bring in influences, and you talk about that in your description of Sichuan cooking at the uh, beginning of the book that. You know, Sichuan cooking as we know it today really emerged in the late 19th century, early 20th century, um, and still is evolving.
1: Absolutely, yes. And I think cuisines in general, they're a sort of living form of culture that is recreated in kitchens on a daily basis. And Sichuanese food is just like that. And there's no better example of that than the chili, which, of course, came from the Americas and has only really been established as a crop in Sichuan for a couple of hundred years. And many of the dishes that we think of as being famously Sichuanese, yes, date to the late 19th and early 20th century. And, um, you know, China is a very food-centric culture. People are particularly interested and even obsessed with food. And so they are always um, creating, innovating. And social cuisine in particular has a reputation for being very baurong, which means sort of open and inclusive and um, sort of adapting outside influences. So um, even, I mean, one of the motivations for doing a second edition of the book, because the first one came out about 18 years ago. Was that um, the cuisine itself has changed so much in that maybe two decades since I first published the book?
0: So, but when you first learned to cook, you did go to a cooking school, Uh, the um, Sichuan high, you know, you learned essentially traditional Sichuan cooking as it was conceived in that school. And has that school changed, or is it in fact still teaching these essential uh, principles of Sichuan cuisine?
1: Well, both, really. So, um, yes, certainly when I was there in about 1995, we learned a sort of canon of classic Sichuanese flavor combinations of classic dishes. And for sure, that will have evolved since then, which is not to say that they've discarded the old dishes, but that they've adapted and included new ingredients. And the cooking school I was at has now moved out of town, out of the capital city, Chengdu, and now has an enormous campus where they teach not only Sichuanese cooking, which is the mainstay, but also, to a certain extent, Western cooking and other Chinese regional cuisines. So it's definitely not static, and um, all kinds of new ingredients have become available, and new dishes are served
0: so in, in with i mean you mentioned you sort of alluded to this and i actually have been thinking about that um that sichuan dishes have been kind of taken over by chinese restaurants let's say who may not themselves be sichuanese um chefs or cooks and they're you know they just add them to the menu and learn the recipes and and they are on the menu as Our Sichuan list or our Hunanese, you know, joining the Hunanese, Cantonese, other cuisines that they might have. Um, In is that also true in China, or is that something that's more of a Western phenomenon? Chinese food in Western uh, environments.
1: Um, Well, I think in China it happens too because what's happened since I was in China, so the reform and opening up since the 1990s, the Chinese economy has just. Thrung back into life. And there's a lot more sort of people moving around the country, opening chain restaurants across the country. And so even menus of trendy restaurants in Sichuan now include dishes from other regions, from Hunan, from the Jiangnan region on the East Coast, um, from all kinds of other regions. And in the same way, Sichuanese dishes, which have been wildly fashionable all over China since the 1990s, are also found on other restaurant menus. And I think that the sort of spicy and stimulating tastes of Sichuanese cuisine are just quite compelling and addictive and everyone wants to eat them. So even in London, you know, Cantonese restaurants that used to just be classic Cantonese, they now include a few spicy Sichuanese dishes on their menus because that's what the customers want, both Chinese and Western customers.
0: Right and now but aren't there it, would you agree that for many people I would I'm thinking more western eaters here but I don't know maybe it's true in China as well that the there are some uh sichuan dishes that are essentially um challenging for um many people's palates they're more it's not so much just the the spiciness but it's the flavors of the chilies themselves which are complex and sometimes really different than we're used to. They're flavors that are just not um, uh, anything that people are accustomed to. And they, I think that they, when I go to a Sichuan restaurant, a good one, um, it seems those dishes are um, less popular. Um, does that, is that kind of accurate to your experience?
1: Well, I think... Um, the really distinctive spice of Sichuanese cuisine is not the chili, but the Sichuan pepper. And good Sichuan pepper produces an extraordinary sensation on the lips. So it makes makes your lips tingle and quiver. Yes. So it's not like chili heat, and it's something totally different. And so the first time I came across that in China in 1992, and I didn't know what it was, and I found it absolutely alarming and quite disturbing. <laughs> And I think that if you encounter Sichuan pepper without anyone telling you what it is and you've never had it before, it's quite weird. Um, So that's the thing that's really distinctive. But I think that now Sichuan pepper, people who are interested in food and Chinese food are getting used to it and getting to really like it. That's not a problem. I think a lot of the distinctive Sichuanese flavors are easily accessible to everyone, particularly yuxiangwei, fish fragrant flavor, which is a lovely combination of pickled chilies, which are not terribly hot, ginger, garlic, and scallion with a bit of sugar and vinegar for a sweet and sour sort of note there. So that's very Sichuanese, and it's not overpoweringly hot, and everyone loves it in my experience. But I think the most challenging thing for Westerners approaching any Chinese regional cuisine is texture. Because the Chinese eat so many foods that are really about texture, and particularly textures that Westerners don't traditionally like—so sort of slithery, gristly, rubbery textures—which um, Chinese people adore. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah.
0: Westerners,
1: you know, Westerners don't have the sort of don't have the concept of eating things just for these particular textures. So that right. those are the dishes and the ingredients that it took me some time to really enjoy and that I think are just initially baffling for people who didn't grow up with them.
0: Yeah. No, I think I'm I think I'm glad you brought that up. It was something I was going to talk about, the idea of texture, you know, with flavor as one thing that we think about, but texture definitely is different in Sichuanese cooking. And there are some textures that I think um I, i'm pretty adventurous i like things that a lot of other people don't like but i've found that there are some challenging textures in sichuanese cooking yeah. um so you you this book is really kind of a comprehensive view of uh sichuan cooking and i think you um maybe we could talk a, or maybe you should talk a little bit about the differences within sichuan kind of regional differentiations, um, city, country, uh, street food, uh, high cuisine. Though You know, there, there's not a single Sichuanese cuisine. It really is um, uh, multiple uh, versions of Sichuan cooking that um, you include.
1: Yes, well, I think that um, Sichuanese is a great cuisine. And when we talk about great cuisines, we usually mean, you know, culinary cultures that are complex and have lots of different aspects. And Sichuan, the province, is about the size of a decent European country. I mean, it's a huge area um, with wonderful local produce and, you know, certain diversity of terrains and, you know, local cultures. And so, yes, there are lots of regional specialities. In fact, everywhere you go in in Sichuan, there will be special local dishes um, and, you know, local snacks in particular. And that's another thing I wanted to do with this fresh edition of the book was to reflect some of that. So I traveled a lot. And particularly in the south of Sichuan, there is just wonderful regional style. So in the south, um, they use a lot of pickled chilies and ginger. Uh, They use some fresh herbs, which is really interesting. And um, you know, Mershan, which is the city with the giant Buddha standing over the river, that um, that area is famous for its tofu dishes, lots of different kinds of tofu. And so it was very fascinating traveling around and collecting recipes from places that are less well-known in the West, even in the regional
0: capital, Chengdu. So this sort of raises another question for any of us who use a book like this. Um, some of us will be in places where supplies are readily available um, or some of them maybe but do, do do people when you talk about sichuan cooking is it a challenge for the uh, the cook at home to find all of the ingredients i mean for some of the recipes i think very difficult for other recipes not so much you can bring, you know stock your larder with a supply but what do you what do you think about that
1: well, actually, I think Szechuanese cuisine is one of the best suited to traveling abroad and being used in other countries and cultures, because the heart and soul of Szechuanese cuisine is really in the flavor combinations. And so once you've stocked up with a few basic seasonings, so soy sauce, sesame oil, Chinese vinegar, Szechuan chili bean paste, really quite a limited range of ingredients, you can create most of those flavor combinations. And you can apply them to whatever ingredients you have to hand. So, for example, a Sichuanese fish dish. You don't have to use the same fish they use in Sichuan, but you should use the same flavor combination. So that's one reason why I think it travels well. And of course, with the book, you know, I wanted to reflect as many aspects as possible of this very rich and complex cuisine. And so I did include some recipes which are more challenging or which require more unusual ingredients because I always want to sort of push people's boundaries a bit and show them the complexity of the cuisine. But I'm also very aware that people, readers, will be trying to cook them at home in America, in Britain, and other places. And so the majority of dishes are um, made with, with ingredients that you should be easily able to get. Either, you know, doing a stock up in a Chinese Supermarket, most of them are available there. You can get a lot of ingredients on the internet now. And then you can use those basic seasonings to cook ingredients that you can get in your local farmer's market or supermarket.
0: Well, that's true. And it is now um, absolutely correct that you can buy so many what we would might might have called exotic um, cooking ingredients. Now you can find them. You don't have to have an Asian grocery store, uh, although obviously some of the fresh ingredients And particularly some of the tofus that, um, you know, the variations of tofu are amazing. And finding the right one is sometimes a challenge because (laughs) most of our supermarkets and even, you know, the natural foods markets carry a particular kind of tofu that's more popular, not necessarily all the variations. Uh, One dish, one of my favorite dishes that you have in the book is the sour and hot sweet potato noodles um i am very fond of sweet potato noodles can't always find them um but and but there is one one item in there that I wondered about and that's like the the chopped preserved mustard tuber um i don't that's one i i don't think i've ever remember seeing even in in a canned you know even in a can
1: well you you may not have been aware of it but you will almost certainly have been if you've been to any chinese supermarket you will almost certainly have come across it, because that that one is actually very easy to find. It's usually canned sometimes in sort of, um, you know, plastic packages, but it's quite a common vegetable. So that's not hard.
0: I will have to look for that one and just be more (laughs) aware.
1: One, One of the things that I do with my books always is to include the Chinese characters for the names of the ingredients, because they often have multiple different English translations. So a lot of people take a photograph of the Chinese characters of the ingredient they're looking for, and they show it to someone in a Chinese supermarket, and then it should be no problem finding it.
0: Oh, that's really smart. You know, I would never have thought of that. It just, I, when when people when you people talk about, well, suggest these obvious ideas, and then you think, oh, why didn't I think of that? That is, <laughs> that's too easy. Um, <laughs> so, uh, of the, if you were to go through this book and. Let's supposing you were recommending uh a a dinner menu to someone uh st- relatively new to Sichuanese cooking. What would you suggest for the app Let's say, and let's assume that they're not uh experienced yet. So pick one or two appetizers and maybe one or two main courses that you would recommend for a relatively novice cook who would then be able to learn, begin to learn and sample the cuisine?
1: Well, I would definitely recommend including um, not doing all stir fry dishes, but including a couple of cold dishes or stews so that you don't have to do everything at the last minute, because that's the thing that takes a bit of practice is your stir frying dishes, which have to be made at the last minute for your guests. So I would suggest a couple of cold dishes, um, so there are some lovely vegetable dishes, for example, the spinach in a sour and hot sauce or the green beans in ginger sauce, both of them really delicious and then you could maybe do a cold chicken dish like um, strange flavor bang bang chicken or chicken in a the, the cold dressed chicken, both of which are really delicious and very easy to make. Um, and then for main dishes, um, it, it's very handy to make a stew in advance. And I really love the um, red braised beef with radish,
0: mm.
1: which is incredibly delicious. You can make in advance quite easy. Um, and then I would definitely do um, a fresh, simple stir fried green of some sort. So there are a number of sort of cabbagey or green recipes. So I would choose one of those. Um, so there already, you're putting together a selection of dishes which are not too difficult. So of those dishes, only the stir-fried vegetable would have to be done the last minute, and then you make a pot full of rice and you have a nice supper for about three or four people. Yeah, that sounds um, great. And then, yeah, and then one dish that um, that I really recommend is um, well, actually, two of my favourite dishes in the book. So one of them is a fish fragrant eggplant. Um, so that one, it's a little bit more involved because you have to deep fry the eggplants first, but it is sensationally delicious. And everyone just adores it.
0: <laughs> Isn't that one of the dishes where it's fish? There is no fish, even though it's in the, in, in the name of the dish.
1: There's no fish. Right. It uses the seasonings of traditional fish cooking. Right. But it's not fish. And it's not even, there's a little chili, but it's not very hot. And it's this... Layered flavors—a combination of a little bit of chili heat, a bit of sweet and sour, a bit of savory—that is just irresistible. Um, so that's one dish that I totally love. <laughs> um, and then another dish that I really recommend is Gong Bao Chicken, known in America often as Kung Pao Chicken. Right. Now that one, I wouldn't—if I'd had a cold chicken dish, I wouldn't then serve a hot chicken dish. But if you chose different cold dishes, Gong Bao Chicken. you have to cut everything up in advance. So that takes a little bit of time and preparation. But then when you cook it, you just add everything into the wok in sequence one by one. So it's not terribly complicated and it is stunningly delicious and everyone loves it again. So those, those two are some of my favorite dishes. But when you're planning a menu, so you want to make sure, as I said before, that you don't have too many stressful dishes to prepare at the last minute, but something that you can make in advance. Um, And you also want to think about having a variety of different flavors. So if you've got something that's very spicy, then make sure you have a very mild green vegetable or a soup, you know? yeah. If you've got something, one dish that's sweet and sour, then don't have another sweet and sour dish. And that way the meal is really interesting because you have this very pleasing variety of different tastes.
0: Yeah. Now, in 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 Sichuan when you go to a restaurant do is that recommended or or is that simply or are you talking about that more for the home you know when you're cooking at home it would in a in in an actual Sichuanese restaurant would that be the normal thing to do is to kind of balance out some of the spicy with less spicy and kind of create a palette of flavors
1: absolutely and that's the case like a well-ordered meal in any part of China is like that. It's a balanced. And so it's one of the sort of Western misconceptions about Chinese food that, for example, Sichuanese food is all really spicy or that all the food is very strongly flavored and a lot of deep frying and fried dishes. It's always about a balance. So um, Chinese people going to a, you know, Sichuanese people going to a restaurant in Sichuan they might have one dish where you're picking out little bits of fried chicken from an enormous pile of chilies, but you can be sure there will also be a very delicate soup and other dishes which are not so hot, and usually plain, plain rice as well. So it's not meant to be overwhelming, and it's certainly not, not meant to be monotonous.
0: So is this kind of referenced in the, uh, the discussion of the 23 flavors? Is that kind of what that's about?
1: Um, Yeah, well, the 23 flavors, so that's one thing that's particularly distinctive about Sichuanese food. You know, I said the art of flavor. And so when I was at the cooking school, we learned 23 different flavor combinations. And some of them are hot, but they're not hot in the same way. So one of the flavor combinations is the famous ma la way, which means numbing and hot. And that's the dishes where you get a lot of scorchy chili flavor, Sichuan pepper, which make your lips sing and is very hot. But there's also the fish fragrant flavor, which I've already discussed, which is quite a mild heat. And there are also lots of flavors that are not hot at all. So one of them is leaves away, which is lychee flavor. So that's really just a sort of delicate sweet and sour. And also the the green beans and ginger sauce that I mentioned. That's Jiang Zuo which means ginger ginger juice flavor. So there's no chili in that at all. It's just you know ginger and vinegar, a bit of sesame oil. So that's very mild. And yes, when you're compiling a menu, you don't want to repeat the same flavor combination. you You want to try and have an assortment of different ingredients, different colours, and different flavours, and that will make for a very pleasing and varied meal.
0: yeah, no, oh, that's I think that's a really it's a good principle for organising life in general. Uh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so one one thing i wanted to ask about because you do mention uh, uh chinese buddhist cookery as being prevalent in sichuan um and maybe you could talk a little bit about how veg- a vegetarian would be able to find uh yeah uh, uh, you know res- food to eat in sichuan
1: Well, the first thing to say is that China offers all kinds of exciting possibilities for vegetarians. Traditionally, people didn't eat much meat. So there are many sensational vegetable dishes, and there are quite a lot of dishes in my book which are either vegetarian or can be made vegetarian just by emitting the small amount of meat that is in them. Um, But having said that, most people in Sichuan, as in China, eat some meat as part of their diet. But the place where you get pure vegetarian and even vegan cooking is in Buddhist monasteries. So Buddhist monks, they normally have a very simple diet, sort of just tofu and um, tofu and vegetables and rice and noodles and so on. But the larger monasteries have restaurants um, where they can entertain visitors from outside. Um, and they have a much more elaborate style of, of vegetarian cuisine and here you get these very um, artful and entertaining um, recreations of meat and fish and poultry using only vegetarian ingredients so you might be served something that looks like a fish in a chili sauce but the fish is made from mashed potato wrapped in tofu skin and fried in the shape of a fish or you might have gongbao chicken but the chicken is actually little cubes of mushroom. And so it's really quite fun because many of these dishes really do look and feel and even sometimes taste like meaty ingredients, but they're totally vegetarian. And you do get this Buddhist vegetarian cooking all over China, but in each region, you get regionally specific dishes. So in Sichuan, Famous dishes include mapo tofu and Kong Pao chicken and twice cooked pork, and you can go to a Sichuanese monastery and eat all these dishes, but they're all vegetarian. Right,
0: <laughs> that's great. Yeah, there. I think there is. I mean, there are quite a few uh, Buddhist vegetarian uh, Chinese restaurants that I know of in the United States that do that kind of cooking. I don't know whether I know of one that does Sichuanese, but I'm in, now I'm gonna see if I can find one because I think <laughs> it's a pretty interesting, um, and really it is fun, I think. I think a lot of it has to do with texture. Again, it's um, the way, it, you know, the, that it kind of plays with your expectations and with your, uh, sense, your sense of taste and texture to re- to have um, food that isn't what you think it is.
1: Yes, exactly, and that's yeah. part I mean. You know, that's another mark of a, of a very sophisticated culinary culture. Is that the pleasures of food? It's not just sensory; it's also intellectual. And in Chinese food culture, there are many examples of culinary jokes. You know, that fool your eyes, that play with your mind, that you see something. Um, there's another dish in the book called Hua Chicken tofu. and um that's a dish which just looks like the kind of tofu in boiling water that you might get as a cheap street snack. And actually, it's made from finely minced chicken breast. yeah,
0: that's <laughs> is, great.
1: you know. Mixed egg white and set to a kind of curd and that's another example of a culinary joke that's not vegetarian.
0: Right. It, it's the reversal. <laughs> that's Yum. great. That is really fun. Well, I, I've loved talking to you about this book and I'm really going to enjoy cooking from it as well. So I want to thank you very much. Fuchsia?
1: Thank you. I hope you managed to stop your daughter from stealing the book this time. Well, is-
0: I, I have a solution to that, and that's to get her her own copy. Uh, <laughs> so that's that's what's going to happen. But thank you again. This is David Wilk. I've been talking to Fuchsia Dunlop about The Food of Sichuan, a new and updated edition of her book, The Land of Plenty. This has been Writer's Cast. Thanks so much.